0: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. A place where even the sea life needs to make their opinions known. On Monday, one crew member was tossed overboard after a right whale collided with a private boat off the coast of Black Island. The crew member was quickly pulled back on board and all five members were safely evacuated. Coast Guard crew were even able to tow the boat to shore after stuffing a sizable hole caused by the collision. The Coast Guard reports that everyone involved in this Moby Dick-style incident made it through unscathed, even the whale. great to be back with you all after a week away. I've been on vacation in Utah where the temperatures reached 112 degrees one day without Adele's Lemonade stand in sight. Very bleak. So this week on the show, I hand the reins over to my colleague Dan McGowan, who talks with Rhode Island Education Commissioner and Helica Infante-Green about how the pandemic changed our understanding of student learning, where the state should spend federal education dollars, and whether she'd send her own children to Providence schools. Dan's conversation with and Fonte Green after a short break.
1: Angelica Infante-Green has been Rhode Island's Education Commissioner since April 2019. She previously worked as a Deputy Commissioner of the New York State Education Department and helped to craft the state's plan for working with multilingual learners. Since coming to Rhode Island, she helped lead the state takeover of Providence schools and then oversaw the process of closing schools and reopening them in a global pandemic. Commissioner, thanks for joining us on Rhode Island Report. Thank you for having me. There's so much to talk about, but I want to get into something kind of personal to begin with. We're kind of coming out of this pandemic um, and, you know, you're getting ready to think about reopening schools. You're also a mom of two children. And I'm curious what the pandemic has been like for you and your family.
2: I think it's been just as it has been for all other families. So both my kids got covid I ended up getting COVID, try quarantining a 10 year old, that doesn't work. Um, So we've experienced everything, not just like an educator, but also as a family.
1: What is that experience, particularly the learning experience for your own kids? What are you taking away from that to try to do in schools all across Rhode Island?
2: Well, it's so interesting. Um, I've been very public about my 13 year old being autistic. He actually did okay. My other daughter did not. (laughs) When we first went out, um, she was in class and then 30 minutes later, I found her playing with her dolls on the floor (laughs) and I had to redirect her. So, you know, it really is about keeping the kids' interests, redirecting them, feeling like they are engaged in a much different way. They really know technology much more than we do. We learned that the hard way this year and a half. They knew how to navigate it. And their interests are different than what we are providing in schools. And that's what I learned, that we need to really shift on a dime and be a little more progressive in terms of how we're teaching our kids.
1: One of the things that I've heard you say countless times, publicly, privately, is you know can't go back to normal. can't go back to the old way of doing things. What does that actually look like, though? Because I, I would venture to guess that schools are going to open the same kind of way they've always opened. They're going to be in the same format in many ways. But what to you has to change about schools in general?
2: There's a couple of things that have to change. How quickly we adjust and adapt. And we made this work under the craziest circumstances. And what I expect for us as we move forward in September is that we're going to be innovative, that we are going to challenge the kids in a very different way, that we can't do the same things we were doing when we went out in the pandemic. So one of the things that really struck me when I first came to Rhode Island is I visited a school and a student said to me, I couldn't attend my first period math class because I had to work. And I think we've always had that gap, not just in Rhode Island, across the nation. We've had the gap, um, socioeconomic, race, um, and they're intertwined many times because we've been doing school the same exact way. So why does that kid have to miss the morning math class? Why couldn't we have this math class um, virtually for this child? Like, Why do we have to have the same eight to three model that we've always had? We thought out of the box, and that's what needs to happen come September, is have something very
1: different for our kids. Just to expand on that a bit, will it look—I imagine this can't happen overnight, obviously, but do you envision a day, I don't know, a couple years down the line, where maybe students aren't going to school in the morning and it looks more like a college kind of experience—
2: that's exactly how I envision it. I also envision that, you know, the school starts maybe at seven, ends at nine, ten o'clock at night. Kids can come in and out just like you described, kind of like in a, in a college setting where they make up their schedules, where they we're working. If you have to work, we learned during the pandemic, many of our kids have to work, have to take care of siblings, they have other responsibilities. We keep trying to force it into uh, this nice, neat box that we're used to the adults. But that's not the reality of our
1: kids. Children who listen to the podcast or your own children hear that they are, might be in school until seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. You might have just lost all of their support.
2: <laughs> um. Well, no, they're not going to be there. They're, there's going to be flexibility. Flexibility. We're not saying we're going to keep them in school 26 hours.
1: Your um, contract expires roughly this time next year. Do you want to stay on board? Do you expect to stay on board as as the commissioner for another maybe three years? I do. I
2: do. I made a commitment to the community, so I'm committed to staying as long as um, the work is here to be done and
1: the governor wants me to stay. We're about to embark on trying to figure out how to spend billions of dollars, in, in the state's education case, hundreds of millions of dollars in federal education relief funding. And I know the Rhode Island Department of Education is a little bit of a pass-through and yeah. districts are, are um, you know, supposed to kind of figure this out as they go. But what kind of guidance are you giving them? What, what kind of projects do you want districts to be spending uh, this newfound money on?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. So we convened a task force, the LEAP task force. Um, And it's about learning equity and moving forward. Like we don't want remediation. If you were doing this in the past, that's not what we want you to do. There's research on what works, what doesn't. Now we have the money. So we know curriculum is important. We know professional development is important. We know that tutoring is important if it's done by people that know the content, educators that know the content, and there's continuity. I think that what we have set forth is the parameters, the guardrails for how the money should be spent. The district will be spending the money. But one of the things that we have seen is with our set aside is that we've put things in place that have been successful. So we launched the first um, summer school program that the Department of Education has ever done. And what we saw is that the kids that participated actually saw gains on their SAT scores in math. So we want to continue that. We want to... do the things that we know
1: work this reminds me this is before your time you were in new york but this new money that that, that we're going to be deciding on how to spend reminds me a lot of race to the top years ago i know <laughs> and and there was lots of great talk about you know bringing people together and spending this this new money and trying to hold teachers accountable more and raise test scores why is this time going to be different than the race to the top scenario a decade ago
2: well, I think what the pandemic has shown us is a couple of things. So we were lucky enough to be one of the few states that actually opened schools during the pandemic. During that pandemic, we also issued our survey works. And what we found in our survey works were that teachers actually excited to be back in the building. The students are actually excited. I think that there's a different feeling right now. As with Race to the Top, it felt like it was imposed. Right now, there's this desire to do better, to make up time, to to move forward, to innovate. What we're pushing is innovation, but it's really like, how are we gonna move together? And then what are the checkpoints? Like I, Everybody has to have checkpoints of what kind of progress we've made. So that's what we're requiring. So it feels a little different. Um, I know that there's a lot of um, comparing the two. But for me, I think everybody being at the table and having experienced something like we just did brings you together in a very different way.
1: It seems like the most impressive thing that, that I saw with uh, throughout the pandemic was how quickly you were able to change education. Um, and, and this isn't just you nationally. When I think about how much school looks exactly like it looked when you and I were in school years ago, right? And, and so the, the ability to, to actually get that done does seem like it, it, it was an impressive endeavor that maybe doesn't get enough credit for, for, for what it is.
2: I think you're right. Um, I started off by saying, you know, we're a bureaucracy. I, I like to describe us as a big ship with a little rudder. We're used to moving very, very slow. During the pandemic, we became a speedboat right? And we try things and move fast. And, and that's how we're going to continue to move is very quickly and, and figure out how we bring the student voice in. I think that was important because when we created that summer school program, we had the kids help us create it. And we had 99% attendance. I don't think we have 99% attendance in anything. It just pushes us to think out of the box and the barriers that we adults create for ourselves.
1: Speaking of barriers, let's talk about Providence. Uh, I can't believe we're now two years, more than two years past the the Johns Hopkins report, which of course kind of laid the groundwork for your intervention in the Providence schools and the state now kind of owns Providence schools in many ways. At the time, you were pretty definitive. Uh, You said that the report told you and and you looking at the schools uh, said you wouldn't send your children to any school in the city. Would you now?
2: We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Um, so it's been two years since the Johns Hopkins report. We took over about a year. We in, intervened about a year and a half ago. And, um, and then we got COVID. So the schools were in a pandemic with still a lot of the same things that were happening in the past. So you can't wave a magic wand and change our education system. But I am proud of the things that we were able to accomplish during a pandemic that really, um, I'm not sure that everybody has really taken note of. I went back to the Johns Hopkins report, and every single thing that they identified as a problem, we tackled during a pandemic. I'll give you an example. We started every school year with about 120 vacancies. This year, during a pandemic, we started with 20.
1: Those are teacher vacancies.
2: Teacher vacancies. And why is that important? When I first started here, I had a student who said it, you know, Commissioner, I feel it's unfair that you're making me take the SAT. I said, why? I said, I haven't had a math teacher in two years. I said, how's that possible? And when we look back, that student had subs for two years. That isn't fair. I also met with a parent who said that her child had 11 substitutes that year. How do we expect kids to actually move forward when they don't have a consistent teacher or a teacher that actually knows the content? So I think that was really important for us. And it was in a pandemic. Like I, I think people fail to understand that. The other piece that was really important was Johns Hopkins identified that in certain schools, even on the same grade level, they had different curriculum. So we invested $4.5 million on a curriculum from K to eight that a hundred educators sat down and selected. And why that's important, you'll hear people saying, but there was curriculum. Yeah, there was a hodgepodge of curriculum. Providence, families and students tend to be highly mobile, so they'll go from one school to another. Some kids, by the time they get to middle school, have been to three or four different schools. So we wanted to have consistency with curriculum that has been deemed high quality and reaches the standards. And remember, the standards are the minimum. So I think we're, we're in a different place. We went from one day of professional development to 12. And I say that because even in a good year, those are difficult things to accomplish. But during a pandemic, um, I, I just, I don't know. We we just kept our head down and moved forward. And I think that we're seeing
1: some of the results. You've had a very public, uh, rocky relationship with the Teachers Union leadership. Uh, I'd love you to self-reflect a little bit here. What, if anything, would you have done differently in managing your relationship with the Teachers Union over the last, say, year?
2: I say if I could go back, I wouldn't be at the negotiation table. Someone in my position— Hardly ever is. Actually, never is. Um, I think it got very contentious when you're trying to negotiate. So I wouldn't have been at the table. I think it. I tried to do it in good faith. I underestimated how personal it would be and how um, difficult, how there would be a campaign mounted. Like, I underestimated that. I have been very quiet, um, kept doing the work. But I don't want it to be adversarial. Doesn't You know, these, these are the people that I need to work with. So if I could do it over, I wouldn't have been at the table.
1: The what, what, let me push back on that just a little bit, though. And we should be clear, the governor, Governor McKee, has um, has kind of went in a different direction. You're no longer at the table for, for mm-hmm. these negotiations, and, and you support that. The one thing that when I'm looking very closely at the teacher's contract in these negotiations that I see is— When it's lawyers and uh, adults who might not always be thinking about public school policy that are negotiating these things, on one hand, it takes motion out. It's a good thing. On the other, you need dramatic change in the contract. So do you have any fear that by – Going in a direction where you're not involved that, that those kind of conversations aren't actually happening at the negotiating table.
2: Oh, well, let, let me make that clear. I'm not personally there, the superintendent's not personally there, but I have a team that still goes to negotiations. Like it's not just the lawyers at the table. So there's a team of people that understand the instructional implications and what it means in the school. Because you're correct. Um, it can't just be lawyers. That that's that I could not agree to. And at the end of the day, every time that there's a negotiation, the superintendent and I get briefed. Like, it's not—it it? isn't free reign. We know what we want at the end of the day. And, um, and that's what everyone's negotiating towards. Like, it, it's not that I'm not there and I have no information. No, no, absolutely not. They come back. We negotiate internally. What can we give on? What can we not— Um, At the end of the day, I have to sign that contract. And you're right. I'm looking for a contract that is transformational, a contract that is going to change things. Um, We don't want to be the worst school district in America. That's not what we want to be. So we have to all be willing to change.
1: Education Commissioner Angelica Infante-Green, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
0: thanks to Dan McGowan for that interview. Here are a few other stories you should check out this week from Globe, Rhode Island. Four medical professionals agreed that a Pawtucket police officer needed treatment for PTSD after years of responding to violent crimes. The police chief and city are fighting against it, saying that trauma is part of the job. My colleague Amanda Milkovitz reports on Detective Dave Silva's fight to receive injured-on-duty leave and what his case could mean for other first responders seeking mental health treatment. Alexa Gagas reports on a new state law banning the intentional release of 10 or more helium balloons in outdoor spaces. The bill was intended to combat environmental concerns, but some advocates say the bill doesn't go far enough. And finally, read Dan McGowan's column, He looks at the techniques Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza is using to position himself as a counter to Governor Dan McKee. Alorza is expected to run in the 2022 gubernatorial race, but hasn't yet announced his candidacy. Find all these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Ned Porter. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? Send us an email at rinews@globe.com. at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next Thursday.